I'm Amy, your host of Mother Lessons. I'm a postpartum doula supporting women through the transition into motherhood and after through emotional and physical support. Mothers need other mothers and through this podcast we can connect and support each other. Mother Lessons was inspired by the word matrescence. The word was coined in the 70s by anthropologist Dana Raphael. It is the transition period of becoming a mother, similar to a child becoming a teenager through adolescence. Our hormones go wild, our hair and skin change. We learn a whole new dynamic to our bodies and our relationships around us. This podcast is for mothers and mothers-to-be. It's here to support mothers in this massive transition and identity shift, which can happen over many years. We will explore all things mothering ourselves and our children, because mothering ourselves is the first step. I'm so excited to have Caitlin Klimmer on the podcast. I've been following her work for the last year or so on Instagram, where she shares all things respectful and peaceful parenting with her daughter Liv. Caitlin is a baby-led sleep and well-being specialist, and she has had over 10 years of working with children and families in a variety of settings as a forest school educator. Above all, she is a mother and her knowledge of peaceful and respectful parenting is paramount. She presents her information in a clear and easy to digest manner that leaves you desiring more. In Caitlin's words, I wholeheartedly believe that we each have the ability to parent in a way that leaves us feeling joyful and deeply connected to our children. I know that peaceful parenting exists in each and every one of us. It is instinctual. We were born to do this. It is also natural. If we let it, nature does its part to assume a fair share of the responsibility. So welcome, Caitlin, to the podcast. I heard recently that people do not want to hear from experts as much as they want to hear from people who are teaching from experience and close enough to a beginner's mind. The equivalent of a guru on a mountain is unattainable, but the meditation teacher in the temple is approachable and relatable. The beginner's mind is valuable for the, valued for this. Caitlin is the relatable laywoman in the thick of parenting a toddler, and everything she does is freshly learnt and applied in her parenting, making her offerings very accessible. There are so many subjects I want to ask Caitlin, um, and I also want to be mindful of time. So um, I love her messages around sleep, reparenting ourselves, consent, independent play, praise, rhythm, and so much more. So welcome, Caitlin, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, me too. So I want to start on the topic of matrescence and the the transition into motherhood. Um, How was the transition from maiden to mother for you? Mm. Um, And what were the highs and lows? Um, So I guess in a word, the transition for me was shocking. Um, I had already been working in the field of early childhood education for almost a decade. um, And I felt really well versed in the early years. So I went into motherhood feeling very confident. Uh, I planned to bed share an attachment parent and I just kind of assumed that everything else would fall into place from there in the first year, but um, needless to say, it didn't. So some of the highs to answer your question were, well, of course, this delicious little newborn that would sleep for hours on end on my chest at first, uh, while I crocheted her cute little baby clothes and listened to podcasts. And those, you know, first couple weeks are really special to me because if my husband and I ever have another baby, 
I don't think my postpartum experience will look quite that relaxed with a toddler running around this time. <laughs> so that was a big high for me. Um, and another one was the deep love affair that I felt with my body, actually. I was feeling really empowered and in awe following the birth of my daughter um, and just amazed at all of the things my body had done and was continuing to do to sustain this life. So mm. that was a, a big high for me. Um, my lows were how insecure I could feel sometimes despite my background. Um, I was letting my, my heart and my you know, knowledge of different childcare philosophies guide me, but actually sometimes those childcare philosophies were clashing with each other. Mm -hmm. And then add to that, you know, the internet and, and mommy forums and Facebook groups and what my circle was telling me. Um, and it, it was really hard to stay true to myself sometimes. And despite those two initial weeks of a newborn who mostly slept all day, every day, uh, things shifted pretty quickly. And um, then the sleep deprivation was definitely a low for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sort of sums up motherhood, early motherhood for so many people, doesn't it? <laughs> Very <Okay. relatable. laughs> I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you plan your postpartum period? Did you, did you sort of, all the sort of narrative around the first 40 days and um, fourth trimester and that kind of thing, was that sort of in your narrative? Um, did you plan a postpartum period? Yeah, absolutely. So in German, um, and I, and I live in Austria, so this, the language here is German, the postpartum period is called Wochenbett, which literally translates to weeks in bed. And wow. yeah, I really liked that word and was grateful that there was this, um, you know, this idea of a postpartum period. But unfortunately, just like in many countries, I think, um, it, it's kind of fall into the wayside and there is a lot of pressure to to get back to normal and and to not let motherhood make too much of a dent on you and on on your individuality and on your personhood and and you know don't be changed by motherhood um and so i did have a lot of talks with my husband before the birth of my daughter about you know saying no to visitors and saying no to events and invitations that we might receive um and really letting our experience and, and how we were feeling on a day-to-day -day basis or even hour-to-hour -hour basis guide our social life after mm. the birth of our daughter. Um, and I was, I was really grateful that I uh, kind of prepared my husband for that because I didn't even want to, I, that's not where I wanted to be putting my attention. I didn't want to have to to worry about what other people were going to say or think or, or the pressure to host people, to clean my house, to have people over. Um, so I, I definitely planned for that and, and had a lot of talks with my husband uh, to make sure that we were on the same page there. Um, and then when my daughter was a few weeks old, I had my parents, my parents flew in and stayed with us. And that was a huge help um, mm. around, like I mentioned, you know, shortly after two weeks, my daughter didn't, she wasn't sleeping as well anymore. And, you know, the idea of cooking meals or cleaning my house, it was just uh, not yeah. on my priority list. And I was really mm. grateful for that support. How long did they stay? They were here. My mom was here for just over two weeks. Um, and then shortly after that, I ended up flying to Canada uh, just for more of that support. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I flew to okay. Canada when my daughter was around two months old. Um, wow. Okay. So and, you did have an extended period of like rest mostly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I 
flown to Canada a number of times with my daughter. Um, and I have to say flying with her as an infant was the easiest experience oh, yeah. <laughs> yet. It only gets harder as they get older. So I was really glad that I, um, that I went and, and could kind of nestle in with my village back in Canada. Mm. My daughter was so young. That reminds me, I watched one of your stories when you went back to Canada, I think when Liv was two, and it really helped me with going on the plane. Really? So I don't know if you've saved those on your highlights for people to see, but um, those I need kind to of tips, check that. Yeah, they're really good. Check Caitlin's highlights out. <laughs> <laughs> I need to make sure that they're up there and if they're not, yeah, I'll get yeah, them yeah. up there. I, yeah, I remember documenting that partially Brilliant. to um, distract myself from my own nervousness because I had no idea which way it was going to go yeah. at that age. Um, and it went surprisingly well yeah looked like it did um can you just briefly describe what you do and how you got into it why you got into it the work yeah so I guess simply put I am a parent educator um I didn't start out this way I have a degree in psychology and a diploma in early childhood education a forest school educator uh I am a forest school educator and I am most recently certified as a baby-led sleep and well-being specialist. Mm -hmm. um, before welcoming my daughter, I was working as the leader of a childcare center and I absolutely loved my work in the early years. Um, but the birth of my daughter made me realize how little information there is out there around infancy and also to some extent about the early years in terms of emotional development. So in my education, there was a big focus on children's cognitive development and how can we get them to do this and that. Um, and, and less attention was paid to how do we respond when they do this and that um, in a way that sets loving limits, but also acknowledges where they are at emotionally and cognitively and how we can support them in ways um, that just really fosters them instead of coming down on them. So mm -hmm. just honors the child and puts them on our level and doesn't put them in a hierarchy that we are above them and need to be done to and all that kind of thing. Exactly. This idea of doing to, and, and also this idea of, you know, this is what the collective is doing. This is what the group is doing. And, and this is what is now expected of you as well. Mm. Um, and, and more kind of meeting children where they are and, and recognizing that they all develop differently and individually. And maybe some of these, goals or these areas that we put so much focus on aren't actually what's all that important in the early years. And if we can focus on the things that do matter, then those other milestones will be reached when they are meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. And it's such, you, you do so many good reminders for that. Yeah. We those, um, that programming out from us, from that sort of eighties parents of um, being done to and rushed and all that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And, you know, these ideas that children need to be independent and that they need to sleep independently and have table manners and, and be able to sit for long periods of time. And, and, and then even the academics, which is a conversation in and of itself, um, you know, this really big focus on academics and learning and, and don't let them fall behind. And I'm just not sure that this is where we ought to be focusing our energy um, in the early years. Yeah, for sure. So I think that mothering ourselves is as important as mothering our children and having a child is such an up-leveling as we get a chance to reparent ourselves, to be the mother we needed as a child and hopefully become that to our child. Parenting ourselves is an important message in your work. Um, where do you start 
if you're completely new to this and how would you identify and work with those triggers that our child that our children are shining on us because sometimes it's really hard to navigate that if you're completely new to it yeah I guess what was really um what really shifted things for me was the realization that nobody makes me feel anything so when I'm upset or angry or impatient or frustrated or stressed it's not because somebody made me feel that way so nothing my daughter does or doesn't do necessarily has the power to make me feel a certain way and I know this to be true because sometimes she'll do something one day and it doesn't phase me at all I'm totally um unfrazzled by it and the next day I, I flip my lid and I'm just like losing it and so it wasn't the objective behavior that necessarily had an impact on me it was a lot more to do with how my internal state was in that moment and how I was feeling how I was doing how I slept the day before how I've been eating all of these things um, and so the realization that, that yeah, she and, and others don't make me feel anything then led me to question, well, why do I feel these ways sometimes? Why do I get so triggered? Why do I get so frustrated? What's going on? And I am a big advocate of therapy and have been in therapy for uh, years and, and um, have worked with a number of therapists that I've really resonated with. But I do recognize that you know, A, there's a huge cost to therapy and that makes it inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, and B, therapy does focus a lot on, um, you know, talking and, and kind of what's going on in the mind. And it doesn't always give us very many tools that we can use in the moment of feeling triggered or activated. So when, when I'm having a moment with my daughter and I'm starting to feel really frustrated, I can't exactly say like, can you put your meltdown on hold for 10 minutes? I've got to go write my journal so I can know what to do about this. Exactly. And I really needed something that allowed me to stay present um, and, and focused and calm in the moment so that at a later point I could then circle back to kind of more uh, the cognitive behavior therapy type stuff. And what that was for me was uh, mindfulness. So really tuning into the body sensations that I was experiencing when I was feeling triggered or activated and uh, what I could do to restore feelings of calm and safety in my body. And so now when I'm having a moment, instead of telling myself very reasonable, logical things that I believe in, you know, she's having a hard time or um, it's okay if you're late or, or, or whatever it is, in the moment, it doesn't feel like enough just to think these things because then the other part of my brain says, you know, comes up with something to combat that and I don't get anywhere. And I choose now to completely get out of my thoughts and into my body. Mm. And um, I do this through a number of different, what is often referred to as grounding techniques. So I might do a body scan where I start at the top of my head and I think to myself, you know, how is my forehead feeling? How do my eyebrows feel? How do my ears feel? And I work my way from the top all the way down to the bottom. Um, another one that I like to do is a five senses check-in. So three things I can smell, three things I can taste, three things I can touch. Um, and a third one that I like um, sometimes is to um, just breath work or, or 10 deep breaths. It's, it's very cliche, but, but just to focus on my breathing and to make sure that my out breaths are longer than my in breaths. Um, and to do this until my body feels calm again and, and to focus on my body while I'm doing it because it's not enough to, to uh, be thinking 
my wild thoughts um, and just kind of going through the motions of doing the deep breaths. I, I really have to be present with the breaths as well. And what I like about these grounding techniques is that I can do them in the moment in the presence of my daughter. So if she's mm -hmm. having a hard time and then suddenly I'm having a hard time, I don't have to walk away or leave her to recenter myself. I can role model these different grounding techniques right there, um, right in front of her. And it helps kind of hit the reset button. I feel calmer and then I can, it's easier for me to act in a way that is aligned with my values when we're having a difficult moment. And I think it also role models coping um, strategies that she can then use when she's older and feeling dysregulated and has the ability to pull from different regulating strategies. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I was sort of imagining myself doing the different things. One thing I get really triggered about is when she is playing up just before bedtime mm. and, and it just triggers my anxiety. I'm like, Oh God, this is not going to work tonight. This is not going to work tonight. Right. And, um, but I'm just trying to think, I can imagine myself doing the breath work, but the first two, I just can't imagine in a, in a state of anxiety to actually be doing that, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. Try. I mean, it's really interesting because the, the more you dig into this, um, actually it's rooted in polyvagal theory or polyvagal mm -hmm. therapy. And, uh, what this approach talks a lot about is that there is this mind body connection and it's kind of like a two way street of communication and so our we're having these anxious or stressed or frustrated thoughts and that is sending signals down to our body that hey alert danger we're in our fight or flight and so our body is getting triggered or activated getting ready for whatever danger there might be out in the environment not realizing of course that our minds have created this danger um and the, then our body prepares and sends signals back up to the brain, which reinforces those negative thoughts, those anxious yeah. thoughts, those frustrated thoughts. And so this kind of feedback loop just keeps amping itself up. And like I was mentioning earlier, traditional talk therapy is so focused on the mind, but that's missing a crucial piece, which is the body connection. Mm -hmm. And when we can get out of our minds and focus instead on feeling safe in our bodies, that then sends signals to our minds that, hey, everything is okay, and we can kind of reverse that loop, mm -hmm. right? So instead of focusing on our mind to make our bodies feel safe, we then focus on our bodies to make our minds feel safe. And it mm -hmm. helps ease some of those thoughts that are influencing our emotions and then often our behaviors oh what a good thing to teach a toddler into life <laughs> yeah um you're a baby led uh, sleep specialist i wish i found you in the early <laughs> days of my mothering um what's your advice for newborn mothers and um with sleep with their infants in general like when they're first in the first couple of months three months yeah so in an but when it gets a bit harder yeah. Um, in a nutshell, I guess, to trust your intuition and to trust your newborn or trust your baby. I think it's a myth that babies can't communicate with us. Mm -hmm. And if we spend time listening to them and especially observing them, we'll find that babies are actually pretty skilled at telling us exactly what they need and when they need it. And I think the problem arises when we look to external experts or uh, we rely on books or we rely on what our friends are doing or telling us they are doing to dictate how we should respond or how we should act or how we think our babies should be acting. Um, and when we can just focus on the baby in front of us and what our heart and our intuition is telling us to do, um, 
we can we can find a lot of ease in that parenting journey. I, I really do believe this. We, I know that a lot of parents struggle with hearing or feeling their intuition. Um, partly, I think, because so many of us have been conditioned from very early on not to listen to ourselves. We are conditioned to listen to what others are telling us. But that's a little bit of a side note. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have an emotional and a physical knowing when it comes to our newborns. They cry in our heart just drops and our arms ache to pick them up or they cry and our breasts start leaking to feed them. So this intuition is very biological. Um, and, and like I said, we run into problems when we keep silencing that knowing and silencing that intuition or, or, or not believing it or not trusting it because the experts of the books or the Facebook groups know better or, or have different opinions. And what do we know? We're, we're new at this. We've never been at home with a, with a newborn before. So I think um, really, really honoring that intuition and, and honoring what our unique baby is trying to communicate with us that they need um, can, can really go a long way. And uh, for those who have multiple children or who have to go back to work, you know, in the weeks or months following the birth of their baby, the question, in my opinion, isn't how can I train my baby to do this or that thing? It's what is the path of least resistance here? Mm -hmm. So if I've got an active toddler at home, but my newborn refuses to be put down, well, can I wrap them up in a sling or a carrier so that they sleep on me and I can keep up with my active two or three-year-old? Or if I've got to go back to work, but the nighttime you know, waking up and walking to another room is just leaving me totally exhausted. Well, can I safely bed share with them or breast sleep with them so that those night wakings feel less disruptive? Um, and, and so kind of shifting the question from what do I need to get my baby to do to what can I do just to make this all easier and not worry about those myths that are out there about, you know, bad sleep habits or sleep crutches or, or bad sleep associations or whatever else they mm-hmm. The industry wants to fear um, us into believing so that they can yeah, make money off us, maybe. make money <laughs> on the million dollar sleep industry, which I recognize that I am a part of. Um, but I hope in a way that it kind of brings mothers back home to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I love the thing that you said about intuition. And I also think that women need to be given the space to build up the bank of knowledge for themselves because if you've never been a mother you don't have those experiences and you probably have somewhere in you this instinct but I think it needs time to build you know do a bit of trial and error and learn for yourself and when you actually go to the experts um, all the time and don't learn upon your experiences you don't trust yourself then and that's and I feel like that's just the sort of the vicious cycle we are in with social media and just information at our fingertips so it's like we just have to keep reminding ourselves and women to believe in themselves totally and i think also to to trust um to encourage women to trust that they are the experts of their own child and if we can um spend time observing our newborn and this sounds so simple and 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 i'm sure many think okay well i am around my kid all day I, I spend my whole day observing them but observing a child is deceptively really hard because we're so used to being busy and active all the time putting everything down and just watching your infant or toddler um, and getting to know their cues their signals their preferences their mm-hmm. communications the small uh gestures or body movements they make that indicate things we will quickly realize what our babies 
are trying to tell us, what they do in certain situations. And then when we do go to the experts, whether that's a pediatrician or a sleep consultant or whomever, our, our mother-in-law, you know, when we do go with someone to questions um, and they say something that doesn't feel good to us, we can confidently respond with, but I know my baby and mm-hmm. I've seen this and this and this. And so, you know, I need something that is tailored to my unique experience because we can't, there is no one size fits all um, yeah. to infancy, oh. to infant sleep, to babies, to toddlers, to families, to being a mother. There's just so many, it's so nuanced. Yeah. hundred percent. This leads very um, smoothly into my next very long question. So bear with me. Um, <laughs> I planned co-sleeping and that worked with me like for me so well for the nine, nine, nine months. And I mean, I love co-sleeping with Juniper. Um, and the sleep regression at nine months hit us really hard. I was delirious and I felt like I could not cope with the lack of sleep. I was suffering mentally and emotionally, and so was my partner. And our relationship was definitely taking a battering. So I found a sleep teacher. Um, her name was Eileen Henry through Rye web- the Rye website. Um, what's her name? Janet Lansbury, which I thought was going to be aligned with everything that I was reading on her blog. Um, but it was basically sleep training disguised in a gentle sleep suit. We used her methods for about a year with lots of heartache, but also lots more sleep. It was just over a year ago that I felt strong enough to listen to my heart and take the long road with sleep through presence and connection, always as number one. So I have quite a lot of shame and guilt at the moment with this. I'm still working through that. And I don't want to suggest that anyone should feel the same as me because I truly believe everyone's on their, their own path. Um, but I wonder what your advice would be for those that went through the whole sleep training thing and stopped and feel similar to me. And for those that are on the brink of a sleep regression and that are really tempted to go down the sleeping training thing, because it's just that comes from a space of desperation and also from a space of not trusting yourself and, and, and going out and seeking authoritative knowledge, I guess. Yeah, totally. Lovely to shine a light on that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the first thing I want to say, I guess, is that my heart goes out to you and I wish that the sleep training message was not so loud. Um, I mentioned earlier in one of my previous responses that um, what made me so insecure or so surprised when I became a new mom was how often the different childcare approaches or ideologies clashed. And you mentioned Pickler and Rye, and I love Pickler and Rye um, and Janet Lasbury for everything except sleep. (laughs) I think that um, these, this, uh, this respectful approach is, is fantastic, but I don't agree with the way that they, that transferred to how they approach sleep. Um, And I think that you know, in response to what you said about guilt and shame, um, what we know, and I don't talk about this very often because I don't want, I don't want this to be the message that people use to condone or, um, I guess, to condone disrespectful behavior or, or, or mistreatment of children. But the brain is plastic the brain is malleable and especially in the early years Mm -hmm. and what this tells us is that we can always repair the relationship we can always repair some of those hurts that might have been caused when we um, in hindsight did things that we wouldn't choose now Mm -hmm. so 
from a sleep training perspective, what that for me would look like would be doubling down on attachment and responsiveness and, and just trying to help my child unlearn the message that your cries um, aren't going to be responded to or um, that they don't matter or that no one is coming. And, and we can do this. We can kind of help this unlearning by always acknowledging their cries or their feelings or their upset and, and validating it and supporting it, which it sounds like this is exactly what you're doing. And, you know, this is, um, this is what your intuition told you is, is the right way to move forward from here. Um, and, and of course, supporting and validating and acknowledging emotions is not the same as, as doing whatever we can to make the crying stop or doing whatever we can to make it all better. You know, that's not, those aren't the same thing, but um, we, what we want our children to know is that their voice matters and that their concerns matter and that their emotional state is just as important to us as their physical state. So even if, you know, they are warm and dry and fed, um, but they're crying out for the middle for us in the middle of the night, we're still going to go to them mm. uh, to circle back to um, sleep regressions. Um, sleep regressions are hard. <laughs> uh, they are really, really hard. And one thing that I do like to remind parents to bring them just a little bit of comfort during this really challenging time is that if your baby or toddler is waking just to nurse and then they're falling right back asleep, they're having a great sleep. Mm. Um, you're not, you're not having a good sleep, but they are. And this can sometimes be comforting for parents who are in addition to being completely sleep deprived and at their limit, um, are also stressed about this idea that their child might be missing out on restorative sleep. So mm. if they are just, you know, waking to, to nurse or to bottle feed and then falling right back asleep, then that for a, a baby and a toddler is a full night's sleep. And, and, um, you don't have to worry that they're missing out on important sleep. Of course, a lot of times regressions involve uh, babies who are awake for hours and hours in the middle of the night. And um, I just want to say that your story sounds really similar to mine in that it was around the nine month mark that I went and got my baby led sleep and well-being certification because I was also so exhausted. And we were also in the middle of a sleep regression um, and my daughter was waking at least every hour um, to, to nurse and, and to comfort nurse. And then it was often really difficult to put her back down to sleep. And, and I knew that I needed to do something because I wasn't able to parent in the way that I wanted to parent during the day because I was just so done. Mm. I had no patience left. I was exhausted. I was frustrated. So I knew that something needed to change. Um, but unfortunately, it seemed like... The, the only two options according to the internet were sleep train, which I wasn't willing to do or wait it out, which mm. also didn't feel feasible for me. I was similar to what you described. I was at my limit. I wasn't coping anymore and something needed to change. So sleep regressions, um, I don't, um, I don't love to focus on sleep during the sleep regression because I think that if we make too many changes in this area, it's, it can sometimes make things worse. A sleep regression happens because so much is already changing in the brain. Uh, babies are reaching milestones. They are consolidating what they've learned. Um, their sleep is changing. Their, their sleep uh, structures are changing and their world is basically reorganizing itself. Um, and, and they're, they're, getting a new understanding of the world. And that can be really 
anxiety um, producing for a baby, which yeah. contributes to more wakes. So I don't like to change too much in regards to sleep because consistency can bring some of um, the security that they are lacking. But I do like to look for areas outside of sleep for support. So can we, if our baby or our toddler go to bed at 7 p.m., can we go to bed with them so that we can then get at least 12 hours of interrupted sleep instead of seven or eight hours of interrupted sleep? Um, can we pull the baby into bed with us if, say, bed sharing is an option and we're not already doing that? Can we have a, a partner or a neighbor support any older children that might be at home with us, maybe bring them to daycare or take them out for the day. Can we, can we nap when the baby naps? And then I know that everyone says that. And if we're like, well, I can't nap, I just can't fall asleep. Then can we rest when the baby naps? Can we rest our bodies? Can we just lie on the couch or in the bed and just read a book or meditate? Um, can you, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and without the intention of falling asleep, because sometimes that pressure to fall asleep when the baby's sleeping is the exact thing that makes it impossible to then sleep. So can, you know, shifting that goal from sleep when the baby sleeps to rest when the baby sleeps. Mm. Um, can you enlist support to do cooking and cleaning for a couple of weeks around the home so that that is just completely taken off of your job description during this challenging time? And I also like to remind parents not to fight sleep. So if at nap time, your baby isn't asleep within 15 minutes then give up, mm -hmm. get out of the room and, and, and try again in half an hour or so go, go out for a little walk around your neighborhood or play in the living room or whatever. But it's simply not worth spending hours and hours and hours in a dark room, bouncing or rocking or nursing a child who just isn't tired enough yet to fall asleep. And I know that was me just, I was just like rage bouncing on the medicine ball with a baby who would not sleep. Um, and this 15 minute rule made all the difference. Uh, just mm. if, it's, if it's not happening within 15 minutes, stop. And you can try again in half an hour or an hour. Um, I also like to remind parents to watch for tired cues, but remember that they work in combination with wake windows. So parents can sometimes, um, you know, their, their baby had a rough night or the child had a rough night. And as a result, as soon as they see tired cues, let's say after an hour, they try to bring their baby to bed when that child actually had a three hour wake window and they might fall asleep, but then they're not going to sleep for long enough. Um, because they just weren't awake long enough, right? There's this idea of sleep pressure and that they need enough sleep pressure in order for them to take a long sleep. So if we bring them to bed too early, they're not gonna have enough of this sleep pressure built up and then they won't nap longer than one sleep cycle. And this can kind of perpetuate the lack of sleep or the overtiredness that they might be in. Um, of course, we, we often need to shorten sleep cycles a little, little bit if the child had a rough night's sleep the night before, but um, never more than what half of their usual wake window is. And, mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, early bedtimes are just so key. Um, and and I, I like to encourage parents to go to bed with, with the baby. Um, yeah, in the early days for sure. Yeah. When, and, and, and then again, you know, between eight and 10 months is another sleep regression. And then again at 18 months. And, mm. and if we're struggling to cope, then, and then an early bedtime for us can also help make this time feel more manageable. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, sleep regressions are difficult, and, and I do like to um, focus more of my work on the time outside of sleep regressions, just because that's such a big time of change that we really want to try to keep things consistent. Yeah, so regressions like, happen. what can support us in the sleep regression rather than changing sleep, because that will change as well, won't it? Because it's, it's a phase. It's all a phase. <laughs> it, it is. It is, exactly. And, and the 
the tricky thing about sleep regressions is we can make a change and it works for a week, but then the next week it's another, yeah. it's another thing. Whereas if we wait until the regression has passed and, and then we start making um, some more long-term changes, then we can see a little bit more consistency there. And how long do sleep regressions sort of last for on average? Do you know? Um, the four month sleep regression can last up to a month. So it can last from around mm -hmm. four to five months. The eight to 10 month sleep regression is about two months, depending on when it starts. Um, and the 18 month sleep regression, um, I'm not sure actually, I think not every child even has an 18 month sleep regression in my, from, from my experience working with clients. I think that what can also help a sleep regression pass faster or maybe go a little bit slower is what's going on during the day as well. So a lot of regressions happen around the same time that babies are reaching milestones and yeah. this can really impact sleep because um, brains consolidate what we've learned during the day while we are sleeping. And so it's not uncommon to see a baby who's practicing rolling over or sitting up in their sleep simply because their brain is going through all of those little steps that, that it was learning about during the day to make the rollover or make the sit up or make the stand up happen. So one way that we can help kind of move this process along is to offer our children lots and lots and lots of time on the floor playing during the day, keeping babies out of containers and out of things where they're strapped in and unable to move their bodies freely so that they have hours and hours of opportunity to practice reaching those milestones. Um, and then this should help with the sleep regression as well. Oh, I love that. That's, yeah, that's really good. Um, Respectable parenting is a massive part of your message. And I get so many useful tips from watching you and live on Instagram and all your posts. Um, I'm reading Alfie Cohen's book, Unconditional Parenting, which you recommend a lot in all your work. Um, and I often trip up with Juniper um, when she shows me a picture she's done or she's dressed really creatively that morning. And I really wanna show her, you know, I see you, but I always fall into praising her could you just shine a light on why it's more accepting and loving to not use praise with your children and could you give a few examples of it yeah sure um i love alfie cone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> want to start an alfie cone fan club uh so i highly recommend that book unconditional parenting which is more geared towards parents than some of his other books are um, but it changed my life completely i think that the whole topic of praise boils down to this do we want our children to be looking to others to get a sense of how they feel about themselves and something they've done or do we want them to feel good about themselves regardless of what others think and one of the reasons why praise is such a tricky topic is because children are born so malleable and we can very quickly condition them to look to others to know how to feel or what to do or, or, or what to think about something that they've done. And this is something that is called extrinsic motivation. When we put a lot of emphasis on how something they did makes us feel, it can undermine their process of looking to themselves to know how something feels. A process, something that is called intrinsic motivation. So really just kind of shifting where we put the focus. Do I want my child to think that I love them because they did this or that thing? Do, do I want my child to think that I got the most excited when they achieved something or when they did something that I deemed worthy? I see a lot of parents using praise 
um, under the guise of positive reinforcement. So if I want to see my child sharing more often, then I'll praise her each time she shares. But what this tells her is that my uh, approval of you is conditional on you doing what I deem to be good or, or, or worthwhile. Um, and, and ultimately, we want our children to, to tune into how something makes them feel and, and let that be their guiding light in, in, in how they act and move through the world. And we can do this by, um, yeah, by putting the focus on them, turning it back around. So when we, to use the example that you gave, when your daughter puts on a really cool outfit or makes some really cool art, um, then I like to shift the focus to how she feels about her art or how she feels about her outfit. Um, and and I, I achieve this by asking a lot of questions. So you're wearing your yellow shirt today. Are you, what, why did you decide to do that? Or why were you in the mood for yellow? Or what called to you about yellow? What spoke to you about yellow today? Or um, if it's an art picture, then what's going on here? And well, where did you get this idea from? And what made you think of that? And, and, and just asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of parents praise because they want to celebrate their children yeah. and, and they want to celebrate their achievements and we're proud of our children and we want them to know that. And, and, and of course we come at it from good intentions, but when children, you know, stand up for the first time, walk for the first time, when they kick that soccer goal or they, you know, they've been working hard on something and they finally get it. They, um, figure out how to use the big kid swing or whatever it is. Um, they already feel good about what they've done. We don't, that's not our role. We're not here to make them feel good. We're here to share in their joy with them. So let's, um, you know, let's celebrate with them. If they're shouting woohoo, we can celebrate by sh shouting woohoo as well. If they're clapping and jumping around, then we can clap and jump around and just get really excited alongside them. Um, and so we don't actually have to put how what they've done makes us feel um, onto them. We don't have to bring that into the equation. They feel good. Let's keep the focus on how they're feeling about themselves. Um, and in terms of, you know, positive reinforcement, it, it's just not how I would approach um, behaviors that I do or don't want to see. And I think that, um, that that can very quickly train children into doing things for approval from others and, and, and now as parents, it can be convenient because they do what we want because we praise them for it. But what happens, you know, down the road when their attachments shift a little bit and they're suddenly seeking that approval from their peers or their friends or, or from people that um, they want to like them, let's say. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that's something worth keeping in mind. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's it actually eases the pressure off just thinking, you can mirror them so you can match them where they are and also kind of sports casting or just being aware and like telling them, narrating what they've done and just exactly. it back to them kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and, and sports casting and narrating is, it, it's probably one of the tools that I pull from the most, especially when I find myself wanting to praise, but I, I don't, um, I don't want to, and I don't really know how to fill in the blanks instead. And so just narrating what I see very objectively without, um, again, putting my, my values on it. So you climbed the slide, you stood up, you kicked the ball. And, and the tone can, of course, be very excitable because we are excited. Yeah, and we can yeah. be authentic about that. 
um, but but what we say and, and the words that we're using are very very neutral and, and yeah and what it is exactly yeah yeah what we see in front of us yeah yeah you speak about Liv being a sensitive or highly spirited um, child could you describe how that looks for you as a mother and what kind of adjustments you make for Liv yeah so because she's on the sensitive side she can move to a state of dysregulation faster or, or easier than people who air more on the easygoing side. Mm. And again, I've spent a lot of time observing my daughter and observing how she reacts in different situations during different parts of the day. This helps me anticipate what her needs might be and, and what I can do or have on hand to support her. So an example is that I never schedule two play dates on the same day, or if she's in forest school in the morning, then I like to keep the afternoon free. And when I don't do this, um, then I notice and I was, I have observed that she's more exhausted and less able to regulate herself when something, even something minor um, and, and upsetting in a small way happens. Um, another example uh, that I learned through observing her was that it was really helpful to have a wrap or a sling with me on all times when we left the house. Um, and that way, when I could see that she was becoming overstimulated and she was starting to give me signs that, um, you know, there might be an, an impending meltdown on the horizon. And then I could kind of bring her into me for a little break and I could kind of act as, as a little bit of a refuge or a barrier to the outside world and the, the closeness with me and, and the physical aspect of bringing that sling up over her eyes, um, you know, and her being nestled into my chest really helped her calm back down to uh, a state of regulation. Um, observing her has also helped me understand what kind of support she needs when she does have that meltdown. So can I touch her? Can I speak to her? Okay, am I at a place where I can explain something to her now? Or are we still in a place of validation? So I guess to circle back, um, as a mother, for me, it has been about observing the child that I have before me and learning about how I can support her in a way that you know is loving and warm and, and allows me to set limits that doesn't dampen her spirit and, mm -hmm. and her self-esteem and her sensitivity. I don't want her to become less sensitive. I think that's one of her greatest characteristics. Um, but I do want to equip her with the ability to move through the world in a way that feels good for her. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's so important to shine a light on how it's a positive thing that they're sensitive and we need every flavor in the world. And um, I think it is a little bit more challenging maybe to have a, a highly spirited child. Um, I'm definitely a mother of a highly spirited child, so I know. And everything just seems like I have to plan more and I have to have more mm. rhythm and I have to, um, yeah, just foresee things in the future more. And I'm just, I guess, a little bit less relaxed from the outer world. You know, my, my peers would be like, let's just go to the beach and stay at the beach for ages. And you yeah. Know, <laughs> Like, yeah. uh, no, I need to get mm -hmm. home by 6.30 and then da 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 da, -da. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, was, I was at the river today actually with a girlfriend and we were texting on a time and, and she was like, well, I can meet at four. And, and I said, but we have to leave at five. Like I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and I see how, she, how her children can just kind of go into their bedtime, staying at the river, playing in the water, having a great time. 
and, and it would be nice to participate in that sometimes, but I just know that that's um, not supportive of what, where she's at right now. I'm not saying that we're never going to get there, exactly. but this is where she's at right now. Yeah. And it's my job to, to care for her and to care for her needs mm, and read her. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. I'm a massive, I'm massively into Aletha Salter's work um, and aware parenting and um, listening to Juniper's tears and tantrums with the understanding she's processing and releasing her stresses. Um, can you speak, speak your view on this and specifically, can you describe like a rundown of a big meltdown um, or a tantrum with a child that doesn't want to be held, but sort of kicks and screams? I'm talking about Juniper here because that's what she does. And all I want to do is just cuddle her. And mm. now she's just starting to let me do that sometimes, but mostly she, it's overwhelming for her and she just wants to be on her own, but with me there. Okay. Yeah, of course. Have a, a little bit of, yeah, your advice on that. Yeah, absolutely. So when our children are feeling dysregulated, like you described, so they are upset, they're crying, they're screaming, maybe they're kicking or biting or throwing something. Um, for whatever reason, they have identified a stressor in their environment or, or they feel stressed, the body feels stressed. And when the body feels stressed, it can react by going into fight or flight mode which is a protective mechanism fight or flight it it's um it's a part of the brain that or, or when we go into this fight or flight mode our brain um, consumes a lot of energy to maintain this state so we're in flight or flight and our, our we become hyper aware of what's going on around us and we become hyper focused on protecting ourselves and um we, we actually shut down different parts of our body to maintain this state that requires so much energy. Mm. And one of those, one of the areas that we shut down is the prefrontal cortex, which is the logical, rational thinking part of the body. So that is why when, when children are so upset, um, it can sometimes feel like they can't even understand what we're saying or, or, or we're saying things and they're just not listening or um, they're just nothing we can take and calm them down. And this is because the prefrontal cortex is also responsible for language processing. And so they, they, they really can't make sense of what we're saying. And that's where our words become kind of useless sometimes. Now, the other thing to, to keep in mind is that when we touch our children or when we want to pull them in for a cuddle, that touch on that body is acting as more stimulation that the brain has to process. So every time our bodies are touched or we're spoken to, um, our body, our brain has to make sense of what's happening. Okay, someone's touching me. This is loving touch. This is whatever, whatever. This person is saying something. And we're asking the brain to process this information at a time when it's already feeling completely overloaded. It is busy keeping us alive or so it thinks. Mm -hmm. It is busy, um, you know, protecting us. That fight or flight mode is engaged. So when we touch our children and sometimes when we speak to our children, it can make the upset worse because it's just, a, it's just, overloading the brain at a time when it feels completely overwhelmed already. Um, and in my experience, when our children are in this state, the best thing to do sometimes is just to hold space near them. So don't touch them, don't talk to them, but stay next to them so that we can co-regulate them down to a state of regulation. Um, co-regulation, which is the process of two people's energies influencing one another. It doesn't have to happen through touch or through words. It can also 
happen. It does happen just through our energy. And so being there is enough and, and, and doing whatever we need to do to make sure that we are maintaining our own state of calm and our own state of regulation. Because if we move up that emotional arousal scale and become dysregulated ourselves, then we're simply upping each other or we're, we're simply, you know, ramping each other up. Whereas if we kind of maintain our baseline and we stay calm and regulated, then we have an easier time pulling our children down that emotional arousal scale back to a state of, of calm and regulation. Um, and oftentimes what I've noticed is that I'll receive a cue or a signal from my daughter that it's okay now to move in with mm -hmm. the cuddles and the touch and the comforting words. Um, but before that, she just kind of needs to to rage in my presence. She needs me to hold space for her emotions and to bear witness to her emotions. That is, or those are two of the prerequisites for um, letting emotions out that we feel safe and that we have someone who will bear witness to that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what I see my role as. And then when she has released some of those emotions, then, um, then I might move in with a cuddle or with some comforting words. And, and that's often when she comes in to cry, um, you know, on my chest and to hug me. And, and again, it's, it's not over right after that. And she still needs some, some more time to let those emotions out, but she can do so in arms at that point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, love that. It, actually aware parenting completely changed the game for parenting with me. Like it's just, um, I mean, you don't really talk so much about aware parenting, but you, you you are basically doing a lot of aware parenting which is just yeah listening and i have i have the book and i've i don't think i've finished it i haven't read it in a while um but yeah it also it, it it really resonated with me and what i find so fascinating is when i see these concepts coming up from different educators but also from different fields of yeah uh you know of different schools of thought or, or fields of uh, expertise. So in education or in science or in psychology or in neuroscience and, and slowly we're starting to see a connection um, being made and, and how we can use this information to support children. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I want to talk about independent play. We've just got a couple more questions because we are getting up to an hour. So I want to respect your time, but um. So it's something that I've really fostered in Juniper since from day one almost. Um, I've really allowed her lots of time on the floor to watch the leaves and discover her hands and feet and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and now she has really long stretches of time where she can play on her own. And a lot of people comment on that, like, how do you do that? But it is really just about letting her do that from birth. And she had lots of floor time. Um, and I also see play as therapy and she processes it every day. She processes her day through play, mainly role play. Can you describe your process of fostering this um, in the infant stages and then to build up to that kind of play? Yeah. So I did something very similar to you. It was really important to me right from the get go that Liv was allowed lots of time to move um, around freely on the floor and I also paid attention to when she was focused or concentrated on something, which for an infant simply looks like staring at something or, or holding their gaze on something. And when I noticed that in early infancy, um, I waited until she averted her eyes before I interrupted her. So if I needed to pick her up to start bath time or bedtime or whatever, just to move to another room, I would wait for the cue that whatever she was focused on with her eyes, 
um, she was finished. And then that was my moment or that was my second to intervene. And what I think that this did was helped build um, the building blocks for concentration because when she's constantly being distracted or interrupted, then that concentration never really has an opportunity to be fostered and developed. Um, moving on, I maintained this approach when she was playing with her toys, even though play can seem so meaningless or unimportant in comparison to the things that I've got to get done. We've got to go here. We've got this doctor's appointment and we need to go grocery shopping. All you're doing is, you know, turning the spoon around in your hands. I'm just going to take this out of your hand. I, I tried to see it differently. She was turning the spoon around in her hands and, and really engrossed in learning about that and, and fascinated with that. And also um, learning how to pursue her own interests. And so I, again, tried my best to wait until she was finished her work and then I would interrupt to meet whatever yes. was on my agenda. Um, in my experience, so as a baby, she, she was also able to do really long stretches um, where she was engrossed in, in whatever it was she found interesting in that moment. For us, things shifted as she moved into the toddler years um, and she did want more. Um, she sought out playtime with me more often and and I kind of saw some of her independent play slipping away um and and I believe so strongly in connection and I believe so strongly in giving our children time and seeing them and and, and meeting their needs for for play I, I do think that's a need um but I also value like you said uh, independent play play is therapy play as a way to work through some difficult things that they're processing that they're going through and so I did start to set some very gentle limits um, around being available to her all day every day mm. uh, and so what that looked like for us was I would often spend some time on the floor playing with her and then I would just slowly start to retreat um, to the sidelines and I really like to have a lap project in my hand so maybe I'll be crocheting something or um, writing in a journal or just doing some handiwork of some sort um, while I'm still nearby and she might engage me ask me a question or point something out and I will respond but I don't actively play all the time anymore mm. um, and and when I feel like um, I've spent a lot of time kind of filling up that connection cup and I do feel comfortable setting a limit and saying I'm going to actually work on my crochet now for a few minutes or I'm going to read my book for a few minutes and I'll let you know when I'm finished or I'll be available as soon as I'm done and I feel like this encourages her independent play but it also teaches her how to respect other people's boundaries yeah. I'm a big believer in respecting her boundaries but she also needs to learn that other people um have boundaries as well. And, um, and, and, I, and I like role modeling that, that it's okay to put your needs on par with the needs of your family members. Yeah. Yeah. And doing your own thing in the same room is also really beautiful, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. She'll, she'll want to probably copy your lap projects. I'm sure she probably tries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, she does. She's recently gotten into my crochet and uh, <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten very far on my projects, needless no, to say. And what do you do when she's um, really needy of your attention? You just need to get the dinner on because it might be burning or something that it just needs to be done. What, what do you do in that situation? So you know that she needs that connection to carry on with her play. Mm. What do you do in that moment when you actually can't give her that? 
Um, so if I absolutely can't, like let's say I'm doing dinner and she's just really needing some connection with me, then I might invite her to help me with dinner. So maybe I'll hold her on my hip or I'll pull her, her learning tower to the counter and she can help me that way and we can connect that way. Um, but if it's not possible, then I recognize that supporting emotion can also happen verbally and, and it also happens through the, uh, the messages I'm sending with my energy. So if I'm, you know, if she's over in the living room and, and she's really needing me, but it's for whatever reason, absolutely impossible for me to get over to her in that second, then I might just verbally say like, Liv, I hear you. You really need me right now. I've got to do this and I'm going to be right there. It looks like you're having a really hard time and just verbally mm -hmm. acknowledging her discomfort or upset or, or hurt or, or whatever it is that she's going through. Um, and, and also then staying calm myself. So it can feel really stressful when I've got dinner going and then she's needing my attention and, uh, our dog is barking outside at somebody or whatever else. Um, and it can feel hard to maintain my own state of calm. But I know that when I start to feel agitated and get agitated, then that makes her feel the same way. Whereas if I can stay calm, then that's going to help her. Again, it's this idea of co-regulation, right? Yeah. And, and the children, yeah. um, they mirror our, our emotions. And so she can borrow my calm to find her own yeah. Calm. and yeah. that's obviously impossible if I don't feel calm so yeah. <laughs> when I can't get to her uh, immediately just yeah really focusing on maintaining my own level of zen yeah yeah, yeah definitely and um, one last question before I ask the two short questions that I ask everyone um, this is very sort of what's happening in the present moment but what's your approach on COVID and the, the way the world's changing so drastically around live um, our nursery is placing loads of different restrictions and no cuddling and all this kind of thing mm. um, and it's a very beautiful school so it's really breaking my heart a little bit um, and we'll, we'll, I actually saw that live did go back to school but what, mm. how was that and how is it and what's your sort of take on all the cautiousness and maybe leading to less authentic human connection yeah um lives forest group is a really small group and um we don't have any of the restrictions that you are talking about um i think partly because we're outside and so you know we're just not they're not as contained to one room as as children might be in the school um but nevertheless in our personal situation, Liv is quite young and she hasn't been exposed to any information about the virus. So she doesn't understand what's going on. She's not old enough to overhear adults. Or of course, she can hear adults talking, but she doesn't understand what they're saying. She doesn't listen to the news or catch snippets of that. So um, we have obviously had to tell her that things are closed right now. So the park, the swimming pool, things like that. Um, and we just phrased it as, everyone is taking a little break right now. So we have to take a little break from visiting our friends. We have to take a break from visiting Oma and Opa. Uh, it's eased up where we are, but that is what we did say. Um, moving forward, I think a couple of things. I think that a lot of us felt incredible anxiety at not knowing what was going to come next and, and not knowing what our future was going to look like or hold or how it was going to be shaped. And I think that we can use this as a fantastic um, perspective 
or, or insight into the perspective our children might be having every single day. So a lot of children have no idea what their day is going to hold or what their future is going to hold or how, you know, what things are going to look like from one minute to the next. And we saw as a collective firsthand how anxiety inducing this was and how it left us feeling sometimes enraged and angry and frustrated and sometimes totally um, emotionless or, or feeling really numb and, and, um, just the whole range. And I think that we can maybe use this as a lesson to think about how important rhythm is in our children's lives and a sense of predictability and security and knowing what is going to come next and, and sense of agency. When we feel like our freedoms are being infringed on, it can, it can not, it feels icky. It feels like we want to rebel and push against that. And I think this is, we can use this as such an amazing lesson to think about how we're treating them and, and how we're shaping our children's worlds for them. Um, in terms of going to daycare and not being able to hug your teacher who, who you need to be a, a person that you're attached to and feel close to for that to be um, a comforting and safe experience. I think that's really hard. And I think that children are incredibly adaptable and they will adapt. Um, but I think that at home we need to make space for maybe some of those, maybe some of that confusion, frustration, um, grief opportunities for those feelings to come out um, around the big changes and, and around the fact that they can't really go to their teachers the same way they did before. If, if they fell down or their teacher, I, I don't know what the restrictions are where you are, but you said that there's no close contact allowed and, and it, it feels hard to understand how, that's even possible. I don't know uh, how it's going to carry on. That, that's what the government's saying, but I don't know how that's even going to be a possibility. I, I can't understand that either with small children. So much of, of our relationship with them, it, it's, yeah, it's in close proximity. It's, it's about building a relationship. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have, yeah. I don't no. have the answers. I, I just think that we can't, um, we can't control everything that happens in the external world on the outside, but we can control what happens in our homes. And that's where yeah. we should put our, put our energy and our attention and our focus. Um, just making sure that we are creating a safe space, predictable space, um, a warm space for them. Yeah. Oh, I love what you said also about just really feeling into how we felt in this whole uncertain time. And then, just reminding ourselves how they feel all the time, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Even if we just journaled that out and remember that feeling, because we're going to lose that feeling because Absolutely. we adapt. So in this feeling, just journal it out of like, what do we feel like when we're powerless? And what yeah. we're to do all the time and taking away our freedoms. The, and a wave of emotions I've felt during this pandemic has, has really surprised me. And, and a lot of things that I don't usually feel or that I don't usually struggle with. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I, again, it just makes it all the more relatable when our ch children are doing things. And we're like, who are you? Or, or what is this? What's happening right now? And maybe look at things outside of the child that might be influencing their behavior. Yeah. Two more questions that are, I asked everyone. So what three books would you recommend a mother read, either when she's pregnant or um, as a mother in general? Um, so for any new or expectant moms, um, the book Brave New Mama by Vicky Rivard, which is actually a book of poems, but a, it's a really quick read. And I think I must have read it 20 or 30 times that first year after my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's, um, it's, 
it's warm and it's funny and it makes you cry and it feels like your mom is giving you a big hug and it's just I just love the book and I gift it to all my expectant friends uh, so that is a big one for me another one we already spoke about unconditional parenting Alfie Cohn big one on my list rest play grow by Deborah McNamara um, sorry rest play grow mm is another one that I absolutely love. It's written by Dr. Deborah McNamara, but it's written on the, based on the teachings of Dr. Gordon Neufeld. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's more focused around the toddler years, but um, I think she's got a lot of great insights and it's also very much focused on the relationship um, and, and that kind of being the center focus always. Mm, okay, thanks for those. And one last question, what would you say to your newborn mother self with the experience you have now? Mm, again, I, I, I feel like I touched on this, but maybe trust your intuition, trust your baby. And maybe I would ask myself a question. What are you here to learn? Um, it's a, a question that I like yeah. to circle back to a lot when I'm struggling or, or when I'm feeling challenged or when I'm having a hard time. Um, and I just ask myself, what are you here to learn? What can you glean from this? Where's the insight? Where's, um, where are the, where are the revolutions or the revelations, you know, what is this here to teach you? Oh, beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, also your seat course, could you, where can people find your seat course? Cause I recommend lots of mothers do that. Yeah, so that's also on my website, uh, www.caitlinclimmer.com. And under the courses tab, you'll see the sleep course. And it is from, I mean, I think it's a fantastic uh, gift for a mom-to-be because the reality is we're all going to have sleep challenges. So um, there's a lot of information there that you can use to plan ahead and to kind of bring some ease to some of those challenges. But it goes all the way up to three years. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, I hope that your listeners will have gleaned from this conversation that I am very much against sleep training, but that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, wait out our sleep challenges. We can make changes that are supportive and responsive um, to how everyone's doing our children and ourselves as well. Mm, yeah, it's a beautiful course. And so, yeah, I follow you on Instagram. So you're Caitlin Klimmer on Instagram. Do you have any other platforms that you're active on Instagram? You're sort of main go to. Um, no, no, I've got um, you know Pinterest and Facebook. Those are on the to do list, yeah. but they've been on the to do list for a long time. I don't know if I can handle another social media platform at the moment, but one day. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so so much for making the time to have this conversation. It's such important work and. I hope the listeners are going to get loads from this, which I know they are. Thank you so much, Amy. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you about yeah. all these things. Lots of love. Have a really lovely evening. Yeah. What a gem. Caitlin is so relatable and I love that she is going through all of this with us. She has such great actionable advice on peaceful parenting. Check out her Instagram, Caitlin Klimmer, and her website, www.caitlinklimmer.com, where she has some very useful blogs and definitely peruse her online offerings as well. She has a baby-led sleep course for, from birth to toddler age. Um, I found it useful until now, um, so around three. And she has a mindful parenting course, which uh, Dave and I are going through right now and have loved getting to know each other's childhoods more and therefore understanding each other more and how we parent. Um, which is so important um, to be on the same page as your partner. 
So, and I love the questions that it raises. It's a great conversation starter. And she also offers one-to-one consultations online anywhere in the world. So as always, thank you for listening. Please share and tag both Caitlin and I on Instagram. And if you feel inclined, give me a review on iTunes. Have a great week.